You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Asia is in need of a new narrative. We need to stop talking about Asia as rising. We need to start asking ourselves, how is Asia going to lead? Asian GDP is now going to be 50% of the global GDP by 2040. 44% of international students are Asian. 119 of the world's 235 unicorns are Asian. 50% of growth in consumer consumption Consumer demand over the next decade is going to come in Asia. And this is not only a China-only story. It is about India, the world's third largest economy already by uh, PPP standards. ASEAN, soon to be the world's fourth largest economy. Japan's hopeful resurgence. To cut a long story short, it's not about if and when Asia will rise, but how Asia is going to lead. Today, I am joined by two global thought leaders on Asia. Parag Khanna, managing partner of uh, uh, Future uh, Map and author of the recent book, The Future is Asian. And James Crabtree, senior fellow at the Center of uh, Asian and Globalization and author of the 2018 bestseller, The Billionaire Raj. So let's warm up with a little bit of a, a personal side, uh, Parag and, and, and James. Tell me something interesting about yourselves, uh, Parag. What uh, your most exciting recent trip? Love to kick off that way. I think that it's, um, you know, talking about travel is revealing about uh, the future of Asia in many ways because I went um, back into the Caucasus, one of my favorite little corners of the world that is geographically in Asia. But when I say Caucasus, no one thinks Asia. But traveling through Georgia and Azerbaijan, one saw the ways in which they're looking at growing trade with Asia, tourists from Asia. I saw Indians, Chinese, and so forth there. And uh, so it's a very much a Silk Road story. New Silk Roads extends that far and beyond. But yeah, the Caucasus is a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, place. And, and and I recall in the past, you've also been telling other stories about a, a trip with a Jeep. Oh, well, there have been many of those. Oh. Uh, but one of my favorites uh, that involves the Jeep is, um, I'll give two. One is just driving across China. Uh, it took a few months um, going through Tibet and Xinjiang, which people don't realize are China's two largest provinces, but with the smallest populations. So it was the summer of 2006 before there were you know, roads and airports and so on. So it literally did take more than two months to cover the distance over the Tibetan plateau and so on. And then uh, from London to Mongolia, that was another Silk wow. Road kind of trip in a Jeep, most of which was across Russia. And again, speaks to the way China in particular sees uh, you know, Russia's role in Asia because Russia is so compliant with Belt and Road kinds of uh, priorities. They've been refurbishing railways across Russia and highways as well. So, you know, Russia increasingly sees itself as, as Asian. And um, in all of my books, actually, the last couple of decades, you know, I've always placed Russia very strongly in Asia. And that's more and more true now than ever. Fascinating. So you've seen all this change firsthand over the last 25 years and and, and more. We're going to come back to some of those topics that you already started talking about there. James, what's your most memorable episode experience over the last many years in, in Asia? So I live in Singapore now, but I used to live in India for five years. And for the most fun that I had uh, was a trip 
uh, skiing in Kashmir. So we, we're recording this just at a moment in which Kashmir is very much in the news. Um, and so the skiing in Kashmir is as good as anywhere you'll find in the world, but also it's the only place where you'll share chairlifts with burly uh, Indian soldiers with Kalashnikovs who are going up to areas close to the line of control. The most interesting trip I've taken recently has been to Myanmar, somewhere I wanted to know a lot better. Um, and last month I spent a bit of time there trying to learn more about the extraordinary Chinese influence that's spreading out from China's Western provinces in large infrastructure projects and in other ways as China attempts to finally find a way to create its own California, a West Coast, a, a maritime um, access, uh, which partially Chinese strategists want to do by developing links through Myanmar into the West Coast of China. And so that was fascinating culturally, but also geopolitically. Fantastic. So I am joined by two people that really know Asia for many, many, many years, um, but also from what's happening on the ground and you've seen it live. Now, let's start with what is the narrative about Asia? What should the narrative about Asia be? Because I, I think that is changing and it deserves to change. Parag? Well, I think you, you definitely said it explicitly in your introduction. It is not just China. You know, China is a pillar of Asia, but among the elements of a new narrative that I would uh, pursue uh, or, or certainly highlight are that uh, Asia's going through what I call the fourth wave of growth. Japan was the first leader, you know, if you will, of the post-war Asian growth miracle. The tiger economies came next, then China, and now you have the fourth wave, which is uh, Pakistan and India, so South Asia through Bangladesh, as well as the Southeast Asian uh, countries. So South and Southeast Asia comprising this fourth wave of Asian growth is a pillar of the new Asian narrative, so it's not just China. The second, though, is, of course, that Asia is Asianizing. You know, there's an integration process. Again, uh, as, as the McKinsey research points out, uh, intra-Asian growth exceeds Asian trade with the rest of the world. So this uh, internal process has uh, been very successful in, in promoting Asian economic resilience and will continue to the more uh, things like the regional comprehensive economic partnership unfold. And the third is, is somewhat softer, but, but uh, you know, part of these uh, two sort of, you know, previous points, but but really needs to be highlighted in and of itself, is that Asia is an additive story. It's not just about the geopolitical rivalries between these uh, civilizations and powers that have historical tensions over territory. It's also very much about the sort of additive complementarities that each gives to the other through their role in, um, in, in, in uh, finance, in technology, trade, and, and other areas. So this mutually reinforces story is also very important uh, because it, rather than being viewed as something that is just happening on the margins of a much deeper set of geopolitical tensions that will inevitably spill over and become World War III, rather it is this, in fact, 365 days a year of incremental progress between Asian countries that is the real deeper story and that's preventing uh, the notion of inevitable conflict between Asian powers from actually taking place. So among the many arguments, James is going to give much you know, more and better ones. But I think that if we could think of you know, 10 parts of the new Asian narrative, that's three or four to start. James, you agree? I do. I mean, the globalization that we have come to be familiar with over the last 20 or 30 years is one in which bits of Asia were connected with the three poles of the rich world. So um, North America... Europe and to some extent Eastern Asia, Japan and Korea. 
Um, and so the story we became familiar with was Asian exporters connecting with those parts of the rich world. What we're now going to see is a different and more complicated story in which Asia begins to connect much more with itself. Um, and the growth that is going to flow from that is going to be much greater than what we've seen already. So if you chart the, the Asian century from, let's say, 1980, which was when uh, China first opened up, we've had 40 years. And the next 40 years, uh, we'll see Asia become much more central to the global economy. It's already larger than the rest of the, the world economy combined. But you're also going to see much greater interconnection, as Parag says, between all sorts mm. of parts of Asia. I mean, it still takes... 30 or 40 hours to get from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Bangkok by train. And so the idea that Asian connectedness is at a, the level that it needs to be is clearly incorrect. And there's still going to be a huge amount of infrastructure investment, digital connectivity, movement of people that is going to increase, and it's going to increase more quickly than it has over the preceding period. And that's particularly true in the poorer parts of the of the continent, so the lower mm. middle income countries, Myanmar, where I just visited, India, where I used to live, you know, the South Asia, as Parag says, these are these in a sense are going to become the locus of growth for Asia in the way that East Asia uh, did over the last period. All right, and I think you know the, the the numbers would bear out what you're saying, which is Asia is becoming more interconnected. Just look at the share of intra-regional trade is already past sixty percent of all the trade in Asia. So we're we're seeing that in the numbers. You also started picking up on some infrastructure topics. Prague, you, you've spent a lot of time observing, thinking about the Belt and Road Initiative. Say a few words about that. Sure. And I think, you know, the process of the infrastructural harmonization, coordination, just cross-border development of uh, trade routes and linkages, that has actually been happening since pretty much the day the Soviet Union collapsed, which is now almost 30 years ago. The world started paying close attention to it really uh, four or five years ago with the announcement of this, uh, you know, Belt and Road. And when, so the when phrase, they put a name to when it, they yeah. put a name, when China put a name to it, mm. but it's been happening financed by Japan, financed by Korea, partially by China, with various pipeline projects, tactical sorts of things. But it's been happening again in an evolutionary way with many participants for a couple of decades. But Belt and Road as a term has concentrated the mind. And a couple of things about it. You know, first of all, um, you know, China has obviously amplified what has been going on, taken it to a whole new level. Uh, and it isn't, it, it's part to a large degree what Chinese financial institutions, development banks, MDBs, you know, have been doing from a unilateral standpoint in terms of the financial firepower and lending and so forth. But it isn't that all roads lead to China. Right. Um, you know, many countries are getting involved in what I call this infrastructure arms race. You have the Europeans, you have the Americans, uh, Japan and India redoubling lots of countries saying we want to be part of this infrastructure story. So what you'll have is many many silk roads leading in many directions, not just east-west only to China, but north-south as well and between various pairs of countries. So I think, you know, we already have strong evidence that this is um, not only a China-centric story. You know, we can look at, again, these bilateral pairings of countries and see growth in their trade, even if it doesn't involve China. So I think it is, you know, some in China like to call it a movement, right, rather than merely a purely Beijing-centric one-to-many kind of exercise. And, and there is very, very firm evidence 
that it is in fact a many-to-many phenomenon. And that's where, you know, I've kind of always viewed it going because that's actually in the genuine spirit of what the Silk Roads were, not really dominated by anyone, but rather with China now at this point, just adding more force uh, to it. Again, there's a lot more that can be said about it. But generally speaking, you know, it's getting us to appreciate the multiplier effect that infrastructure has both on domestic growth, GDP growth, urbanization, consumption, but of course also on cross-border trade, which is very important for Asians in order to genuinely exploit, uh, you know, the complementarities that they have with each other. So many different uh, angles we could pick up on here. Let me start with one. We hear a lot about different associations, uh, trade uh, agreements uh, TPP, the, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, RCEP, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, and so on. Are they important? Are they real? Are they going to happen? What role do they play, uh, James? I think you see different things in different parts of the world. So we live in a moment in which it appears that the global trade system is falling apart. But actually here in Asia, there's some evidence to go in the other direction. So you have the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership now renamed without the United States. You potentially have the signature of RCEP, an Asian-led trade agreement. And you have the European Union signing trade deals with Japan, with Singapore, with Korea, potentially with others, potentially with ASEAN as a whole, if they get their act together. And so while the global trade system that we have come to know as the engine of globalization, I think it would be fair to say in future is going to be more problematic. This is still a complicated picture in which there are some parts of the world, particularly here, where policy elites are trying to push forward with trade and integration. And integration remains one of Asia's big challenges. It isn't just that it takes ages to get from KL to Thailand. It's that large parts of Asia's potentially productive economy, particularly in South Asia, barely trade with each other at all. Um, and, and so this mission of integration is one that um, is a big part of Asia's future success. Mm. Let's just, you, you mentioned ASEAN, and to me, you know, we can debate, is the glass half full or half empty? You know, ASEAN as such has been a big driver for good, many would say, in terms of making trade easier and what have you, and collaboration across. It's, it's uh, hindered uh, even you know, some of the tensions that we otherwise have seen historically. On the other hand, other people are quite impatient and saying that, listen, progress should be much faster. You know, what's your view, James and then Parag? I mean, I think there was a time in which if you were a European, as both of us are, um, Europeans like to think that the rest of the world was going to become Europeanized. And they looked at ASEAN and thought, well, maybe over time, ASEAN as a grouping of Southeast Asian nations would go down the EU route. I think that's almost impossible to imagine. I mean, I think ASEAN, firstly, has real complications about its membership. You have one of the richest countries in the world in Singapore at the top, and then you have some of the poorest countries in the world in Laos and Myanmar at the bottom. Uh, you also have a very complicated security relationship with China. And so I think you know, ASEAN will continue gradually to integrate, but you're not going to see anything close to a European-style supranational project. And in a sense, that's one of the big tensions for Asia, and ASEAN represents this, which is that economically as has been true over the last 40 years, all of the um, you know the signs point towards greater integration and greater growth. But you do have a big complication on the security front where Asia's security architecture has always been more complicated than in other parts of the world. And in particular, the relationship between China and other parts of Asia and how China's rising influence is reacted to by other Asian countries, particularly the smaller, more vulnerable ASEAN countries, will have a big say in how successful... Asia is in developing its economic potential. Because in the end, if you don't have a security architecture which allows you to trade freely and um, stops 
as we're seeing at the moment, countries like Japan and Korea fighting with one another over over trade, you know, that can be a severe dampener on growth. So you have a, a tension between the economic potential and the complications of the security situation. And ASEAN is right in the middle of that. In a way, you could say that where Western Europe was the front line of geopolitical competition in the second half of the 20th century, ASEAN is going to be where this is played out between uh, China, India, and the United States in the 21st century. So let's continue on ASEAN for a couple of minutes, uh, Parag. Uh, I think ASEAN is kind of one of the the new and even very exciting parts of the new narrative in Asia. Just a couple of words about that. Sure. And, you know, the thing is about the teleology of integration, this notion that ASEAN should have evolved in the direction of the European Union. I mean, the fact being, of course, that this is a very diverse region of the world with a very high degree of inequality. So, you know, both points that James has made. And therefore, you were never really going to have ASEAN look like the European Union in a supranational kind of way, the homogeneity and the common geopolitical, uh, you know, view, if you will, doesn't exist in this uh, part of the world. But that doesn't mean that that therefore you're not going to have the essential building uh, ASEANization, if you will. So much more important than how robust or supranational the institution is, is to what extent are the economies getting complement, you know, sort of uh, building relations and ties with each other in a way that maintains the momentum for that process. And that we clearly see happening. Um, you know, and I just want to emphasize a point that James made about the inequality. When we talk about, you know, an, a broader Asia of 3 billion middle-class uh, consumers, that still means that there's about 2 billion and poor people right in Asia and a lot of them are either in South Asia or Southeast Asia mm. so there's a, we have a long way to go to pull them upward we have a long way to go in terms of the regulatory harmonization that we want to see happen between uh, ASEAN countries and that will help to drive the intra-regional growth forward James also mentioned South Asian countries barely mm. trade with each other the rate of ASEAN intra-ASEAN trade as a share of total trade is low this is you know again measuring it against Europe is insincere and irrelevant yeah. at some level, right? Because when you have very large countries and many of them with complementary economies, you're not going to have a high volume of trade. They have to be rich and be services-based economies to expect to see a very, very large volume of trade between them. So I think that ASEAN will get to where it's going, which is not where Europe is going, but is certainly a much better place in terms of the complementary movement of goods and services than what we have right now. And that's, again, a positive story that doesn't get uh, enough attention. All right. I mean, I think there's one other interesting point, another challenge for Asia, which is particularly true for the lower middle income countries. So not so much the ones who've already made it, the Asian tigers, but those who are trying to make it, which is firstly, you have the global background of, of trade conflicts. But as McKinsey's research has pointed out at, at other points, the, the success of Asia of building um, an exporting economy based on cheap labor, that's going to become mm. more difficult to repeat in future because the, the global value chains that come through and out of Asia increasingly are service-driven, digital, and the places that prosper by connecting to those value chains are more highly skilled, more urban. The, the image of Asia's future prosperity is less likely to be factories making garments or, or you know, wooden furniture. Um, and that makes it more difficult for countries like India and Myanmar to prosper. So in addition to this tension between security 
um, and economic growth, you also have the changing nature of globalization, which um, is driven by a whole range of factors, including you know automation, what people call the fourth industrial revolution. But that makes it more difficult for the the rising Asian powers to mimic the growth model that propelled the early pioneers of Asia to economic prosperity. I'll just get that a sort of, you know, statistical or, you know, a mm. data point that's very useful in this regard. The good news is that even the Vietnams and Philippines, you know, and Indonesia is the countries that um, we think of as being dependent on this uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, export-led growth model of the previous tiger generation already are economies where 50% or more of GDP is services driven. So they mm -hmm. actually have a fairly, what you might call a modern economic mm -hmm. structure composition, despite their low income levels. So they are getting most of the marginal new jobs being created in uh, you know, um, in manufacturing in the world, which is good for them. But they depend on it much less than their own economies did a generation ago or the tiger economies did a generation ago. So in oh. other words, this is a sweet spot where the Vietnam, Philippines, and other like countries get to have their cake and eat it too. They get yeah. the jobs. It's certainly less than before because of automation, but they're getting plenty of new manufacturing work, but they are already services-driven economies, right? They are digitizing, financializing, urbanizing, and so forth. So, you know, that doesn't lead to an exact prediction about whether or not they will overcome the so-called middle income trap. Mm -hmm. But let's remember that that itself is a fairly outdated concept when you think about the falling costs of goods and services. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. And, and again, numbers absolutely bear out what you're saying. Also, you're just going back to this point, you know, we're making, James. So today, you know, we have looked at it's only, it's less than 20%, 18% of trade today is based on this low cost, low labor cost arbitrage, right? Which is, you know, significantly down over the last decade. And, uh, you know, we, we look now, what is happening now, China is increasingly producing for the purpose of China. India is producing increasingly for the purpose of India. In In China itself, we've seen that the, the percentage of goods manufactured that are exported has gone from just about 16 to 8.3% in a decade. And by the way, that is whilst trade, uh, sorry, manufacturing overall has tripled. So it's not that they're doing less, they're actually doing a lot more, but the percentage exported is, 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 is much less. So it's China is producing for China and so forth. And that's true for all the countries across. I want to change a little bit time horizon for a second. I do, you know, overall we'll focus on the longer term, but uh, we know there's a lot of tensions, there's a lot of interest in the short term, trade wars and what have you. Are these important in the long scheme of uh, things? Well, I think that we have to put the trade war in context. It's woken a lot of people up to things that were already happening. But if we were to have this conversation 10 years from now, it would be disingenuous to attribute things that have been happening since before the trade war to the trade war. So we have an opportunity now to make sure that people understand the correct sequencing of what's been going on. So for example, you know, Japan has been diverting foreign investment from China into Southeast Asia for 10 years well before the trade war. It's been doing so because of the labor cost arbitrage, because Chinese wages were rising, and because of geopolitical tensions with China. You remember the rare earth uh, mineral dispute, for example. So 
other countries have started to, you know, Western countries and firms, multinationals, started to see what Japan was doing and to also wake up to the ASEAN opportunity before the trade war. So if we look back 10 years from now and we say, wow, ASEAN really benefited, it must be because of the trade war, let's be clear that it's not just because of the trade war. The trade war is an accelerant to something that was underway. Mm. What was also underway way before the trade war was, again, the fundamental data that, that you pointed out at the top, which is that intra-Asian trade has exceeded trade outside the region. So this, again, integration process was going on before the Western financial crisis, before the trade war. So we should not be looking back and falsely attributing Asia's own progress and integration to either of those phenomena. We should view it as something much more uh, organic, if you will. So to the final point, you know, so does the trade war in the end really matter? Well, clearly, you know, it's accelerating things that were already underway, which is not only Asia's own integration, but then Eurasian integration as well. Because uh, Europe's trade with Asia exceeds its trade with the United States by a very wide margin. So Europe already has been looking to Asia as a way to hedge against uh, sort of political volatility and, and economic uh, kind of you know plateau of the United States for a very long time. Again, before the trade war, before the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. So we should really again think about these things. You know, as you rightly say, let's take a step back, think about uh, the long term, and the more you do look at it, the less today's focus on the trade war genuinely matters? I mean, I think it's immensely significant for two reasons. The first of which is we have had for the last 30 or 40 years an unusual interregnum in history. Uh, What people call the rules-based order um, in a sense was an attempt to separate uh, economic and security policy, um, which was reasonably successful under the United States umbrella And so if countries had economic arguments with one another, they did that in the economic domain. They did it through the WTO. They did it by rules associated with either global or regional trade agreements. And it's very clear that what is happening is that is breaking down. And so, and it's partially breaking down because of the United States itself, but also because of others. Look at what's happening between Japan and Korea at the moment. And so this intermingling again of security and economic policy, which is the normal order of things and has been true for most of human existence, that is returning. And that simply makes it more difficult to do business, um, introduces all sorts of levels of uncertainty on lots of different levels. And so I think that the, the return of a certain kind of history is very significant. And it's also significant for what we were talking about before, that in the end, even if the type of globalization we're moving towards is different from the one that we've been used to. It's more Chinese, more digital, less to do with labor-intensive manufacturing. Nonetheless, if you're India or if you're Myanmar, you still want to build a labor-intensive manufacturing economy. You have a lot of people who need jobs. You want a slice of that Chinese factory economy. You want to be making smartphones. You want to be making solar panels, in part because of the magic of manufacturing. It's the best way that we know to take the hundreds of millions of people who still work on farms and move them into cities and into productive labor. Parag is right that a lot of these economies have services sectors, but these are services sectors. It's working in a Vodafone shop. It's not working in a software developer. Mm -hmm. And so still manufacturing remains the most successful engine of globalization and economic development for poorer countries. And so if that becomes more difficult, as it will, and if trade is costlier, it will have um, a a dampening effect on Asia's ability to prosper, particularly amongst these poorer countries. I'll add one point, though. One would hope, though, that given the situation where, you know, Myanmar and Indonesia are going to struggle to generate large industrial bases as a a, real engine or motor of growth, this will hopefully 
get them to focus on greater efficiencies in the endowments that they do have, you know, mm-hmm. which is natural resources and so forth. Because if you think about the mismanagement, the waste, the corruption, the low productivity in those sectors, they do need to get right what God has given them, right? And I'm saying this very pointedly, you know, at a country like Myanmar, where six or seven years ago, I remember doing a panel with a minister and he said, I remember six or seven years ago, Myanmar was even less developed than it is today. And he's saying, we're going to be a smart nation. I was like, hold on, can you please get your timber, your jade, your gas and other things right first? Because, you know, just to um, add to what James was saying, when you think about the engines of growth historically, yes, for Asian countries, what you said is absolutely true, manufacturing. But if we're talking about Persian Gulf countries, that's not true. They got their energy sectors right. So let's use what, let's have every country do best what they have, right? And that's actually what comparative advantage is all about. And we're going to come back to some of the things you said, especially on technology, but, you know, coming back to the trade tensions that we have, trade war that we have today. So what I hear is, you know, of course, it matters to the CEO that needs to make short-term decisions around how much to invest, where to invest, and how to plan for growth. You know, that, you know, is a difficult decision and is now even more difficult. But in the long run, you know, what this also does is accelerate some of these trends and shifts uh, that we see across Asia, shifting supply chains where things are going to be produced and so forth. Um, and and perhaps worryingly, you know, it starts to undermine, you know, the way economics, trade, et cetera, have been happening. Uh, you, you talked about a rules-based order. Uh, James, it starts undermining some of the confidence, some of the trust of relationships. Uh, so, so, so those are the long-term uh, implications of kind of the short-term tensions that we see. Hopeful, hopefully short-term tensions. I mean, I think you see different trends pulling in different directions. So if you think about value chains, then the global value chains which multinationals have created have lengthened substantially over the last um, generation. They become longer and more complicated. They become more diverse. They're in different parts of the world. You think of the classic examples, the iPhone, the Airbus, um, what have you. Now, geopolitical tensions are going to, um, I think, almost undoubtedly force companies to shorten those value chains. They're going to localize them, they're going to regionalize them, they're going to make them um, less complicated. That would be one direction. But technology pulls you in other directions. As technology becomes more diffuse, as more of the value in products um, is contained not in the physical goods, but in the, the services and IP and digital infrastructure wrapped around them, then that will take you in a different direction. And so the the interplay of these factors, on the one hand, the way that geopolitics and trade tensions and the rising cost of trade will change incentives for companies might take you back from the the vision that we had before the financial crisis, the age of hyper-globalization. But then you have a a new world opening up, um, which will create a different set of incentives. And that may also privilege different countries. So for instance, we've got very used to the winners of stages of globalization being the manufacturing exporters, most recently Vietnam has been the one that's been Mm -hmm. able to manage that. But it may well be if they get their act together that the next stage could be uh, India and the Philippines, countries that have large English language um, speaking populations that have a tech base that is deeper than in other countries. And so that this changing globalization will create winners and losers just as the last one did. You know, the better part of globalization has also long been regionalization. So we shouldn't pretend that the two are necessarily antithetical. You know, if you look at the Asianization process and you think about the trade agreements within the Asian region, more than 20 actually bilateral or interregional negotiations uh, underway, they borrow a lot from the global playbook of the WTO, right? So it's not that 
you know, the global mm. trading system is dead. It's about the rules more than it is about one specific institution. We don't have the League of Nations anymore, right? But, you know, one generation of institutions passes on certain codes and laws and norms that evolve and are adopted and integrated in different ways. So it's true that the WTO is on the ropes in many ways, but it has been since way before the trade war because we weren't able to make progress amongst countries in issues like, you know, basic issues like agriculture or very advanced issues on IP protection. And yet, though, if you're forming these major Asian trade agreements, which are contributing in many ways to globalization, because as Asia integrates further, it becomes a very attractive market and it brings in still a lot of foreign capital and firms, right? They are borrowing from the key uh, you know, architecture and templates and rules from, from the global level, even if the global trading system, quote unquote, falls apart, the DNA mm. of the WTO and its rules are embedded in these new regional entities, institutions. So I again take a sort of evolutionary view, a view in which what's so-called fragmented isn't necessarily totally fragmented, it's a phase. Um, and where again, some of the very important areas, and you know, McKinsey has tried to do a lot to quantify the value of global services trade as hard as it is, never really properly covered that well. We have a parallel set of agreements in global trade negotiations around technology and services in which there's coalitions of dozens of countries that are significantly liberalizing trade in those areas that haven't been fully addressed by the WTO. So let's not hold the WTO as the one and only physical institution mm -hmm. that embodies the notion of trade. Trade. trade continues, complementaries continue, comparative advantage continues, and flourishes around the world in many ways, nonetheless. So, so let's shift uh, topic. Uh, it's an, uh, from 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 where we were. You've mentioned the word technology in different types uh, a few times. So let's zoom in on technology for a second. Some some actually would say that listen, you know, the ongoing so-called trade war isn't about trade. It's actually about technology, IP, and so forth. And um, you know, certainly, if you look at technology in Asia over the past uh, decade, huge leaps forward. Right? I mentioned earlier, 119 unicorns out of 230 globally are here in uh, in Asia. Uh, we see the amount of venture investment. Uh, China is already the the second largest, only to the U.S. Uh, globally. Uh, we see that actually the majority of the venture investments in Asia are done by Asians, Asian institutions. So there's just an incredible growth. Um, and, and by the way, it's not only China, right? Um, India has more unicorns than than Germany and is spending more venture uh, financing than, than than Germany. So it's not only China. But how do you think about technology and its role um, and its standing in uh, in Asia? I mean, I think you're right. The venture scene here is particularly interesting. It's happened very quickly. So India, although it has a deep bench of technological talent going back to the formation of its um, IT outsourcing industry at the turn of the century, um, let's say when I lived there in 2012, 2013, that was in the aftermath of the Alibaba IPO. You had a lot of money that had previously been in China or chasing Chinese profits went to India. And only recently in the last couple of years, you've seen an extraordinary flourishing um, of the Southeast Asia and the kind of ASEAN tech scene as well, driven by companies like Grab and Gojek. But increasingly, you know, the VC community has realized that there are 600 million consumers here. And although this is a more complicated market than China or potentially India, this is going to be a big source of growth as well. I think one note of caution, though, Parag earlier mentioned this idea that 
people are very keen in Asia to um, use the phrase smart nation, which is a Singaporean phrase, but the word that's often used is leapfrogging. Um, that somehow because you have lots of mobile phones and you have companies like Grab and Gojek, you are moving very quickly from being, in a sense, an antiquated kind of country to a very advanced sort of country, and that you can do that across all domains. And that doesn't really work. In the end, the successful Asian countries that developed did the basic things right. So if you were Singapore, you became experts in municipal sewerage and building regulation and urban planning. You developed high-capacity state organizations where civil servants were well-paid, not corrupt. And in a sense, so that the temptation of technology, remarkable though it is, shouldn't take you away from the fact that the the basic drivers of good development often are nothing to do with technology at all. They're about uh, high quality institutions and getting the basics right. And so I think huge potential in Asia to use technology to combat a whole range of challenges from poverty to climate, which we haven't mentioned, one of the most significant but you have to realize that that isn't all that you need in order to develop quickly. Oh, I couldn't agree more uh, with what James is saying. And, you know, Singapore, I mean, even with Gojek, you know, as a super app in Indonesia, Indonesia is still Indonesia, right? There are things that this super app can do. And in some ways, they are contributing to the state-ness. I mean, this is the area where things get, get interesting. So, you know, Indonesia is still a very weak state and a very limited state. However, if you, in terms of leapfrogging, because I think that's a term that I agree with James should be used in a guarded way, but maybe the one thing that Gojek can do, and this is more potential than actual, is to help Indonesia be a better state in the sense that poorer countries can use technology for public service delivery more efficiently than they would have if they were to go through a conventional development uh, process. So if you think about, um, you know, uh, healthcare services, right, you know, a country like Indonesia and India, which are very poor per capita, are actually legislating, you know, right to healthcare and a minimum healthcare standard. They're they're not middle-income countries. They don't have $40,000. They're not high-income countries either where they can afford to have a European-style welfare state. Well, then why is it that they have the confidence to say, you know what, let's legislate universal health care because we're going to find technological solutions to delivering basic medical care at a very low cost. They wouldn't be able to do it um, you know, without some of the new technology input. So the critical thing, just one other point, is that, you know, we do celebrate the unicorns and the inventiveness to the extent that that's happening in Asia. But fundamentally, the role of technology in promoting Asian growth is not so much, you know, how much did you invent, but how much did you adapt? How much did you incorporate? You know, so countries that are not going to be major pioneers of new technologies, uh, like Vietnam and Indonesia, the question is, how much are they absorbing the lowest cost, best performing technology platforms that are going to help them develop anyway. And that's less sexy than looking at uniform, uh, unicorns. But in terms of scaled impact for a large society, that matters a lot. Mm. We, we, um, we haven't heard um, much about Japan and Korea so far in this conversation. Any thoughts on technology in Japan, in Korea? How is that changing societies, companies, and what have you? Any thoughts on that? Uh, sure. I mean, I would say two things. First of all, it's what's happening indigenously, domestically in those economies, because they are the most mature, sophisticated, technologically penetrated countries in the world, probably in terms of everything from telecommunication standards to the role of technology in healthcare, and as well as their R&D in everything from um, you know uh, uh, materials to biomedical and so forth. So what you see is a very highly evolved sort of you know society in terms of the role of technology in those countries. Then there's also how are they exporting it? And we're seeing 
seeing a lot more of that as well because they are doing a lot to diversify again their supply chains and bringing the manufacturing of certain technologies such as even chips mobile phones into secondary markets uh, so spreading technology much more rapidly in that way it's also happening in the automotive sector um, uh, as well and they are exporting things like um, you know uh, internet of things you know, Japan also has its own AI initiative so it's again not just about you know Baidu going out and being a kind of Chinese engine of data absorption uh, and services in the region is also Japanese companies so whether it's internet of things whether it's sensors whether it's AI in all of these areas Japan and Korea are not just innovators for their own economies but they are exporting these as well I mean, they are on the front line of geopolitical competition for starters. So both American allies in an era in which that's more complicated, both countries that have complicated relationship with China. So that's a problem. Um, it's also problematic from a technological point of view. So just as the Americans and the Germans worry about what happens to their high quality technology in an era in which China is more prosperous, so Japan and Korea feel much the same threat that companies like Samsung, for instance, which have spent so much money on IP, are being threatened by a rising China and developing an innovation economy. Um, these are innovative, technologically advanced societies, but they themselves worry that they are not being able to mimic what you see in Silicon Valley or in the suburbs of Beijing in terms of technological innovation that's creating companies that are then going on to have a global presence. So you have uh, companies like SoftBank, which are very high profile, but there are fewer, apart from Samsung, fewer tech giants emerging from these countries. So I think those are three interesting areas to watch, the geopolitical position, their technological relation with China, and then the extent to which they are able to sustain and develop their position as world-leading innovation economies. Thank you. Listen, I'm also looking at the time, so I want to give two questions to each of you um, as we start to, to, to round. Number one, anything that is important that we haven't covered on, on, on Asia overall, and then the, the second one after that is is if you are an, what advice would you have for a leader listening to this conversation in terms of how to think about Asia? But let's let's do the first one first, which is you know any any topics that are important that we haven't talked about in Asia that you have. I mean, I think the biggest and most obvious one is climate. Um, mm. This is going to be an extraordinary driver of all sorts of developments around Asia. Many of them bad. Unfortunately, some of them good. I mean, we heard recently, uh, we're recording this um, a few days after the Singaporean prime minister gave his annual address in which Singapore, being the most technocratic and long-term government in Asia, rolled out the beginnings of a hundred-year plan to begin to protect this small island where the three of us live uh, from, um, unfortunately, what looks like to be um, uh, you know, a, a process of adaptation to climate change. So that is going to involve a huge amount of investment, some of which will have productive consequences. Uh, but I fear if you are, you know, in in India, for instance, uh, or other uh, climate-affected uh, nations, that many of the consequences of this are going to be bad. And I suppose if I was uh, giving advice to a political leader, the advice that I would give uh, is that the only thing that solves all of the challenges that Asia has is high-quality government. Um, there is a problem that Asia has, which is rooted in its history including figures like Lee Kuan Yew, where there's a skepticism of the state. Um, a lot of Asian economies still do not want to be seen to be sclerotic, Western European-style, bloated governments. But in the end, you can't solve problems like climate, like urbanization, like industrial development, unless you have high-quality 
government. That was what Singapore got right. It developed really world-class institutions. Um, and if you look around the rest of the continent, particularly places like India, where I used to live, they're very far from world-class institutions. And so, um, and so that, I think, is the big challenge. Uh, it's not to do with technology. It's to do with institutional development. I'd like to echo that. Maybe we can take those two themes that James mentioned and, and sort of side by side as the two major issues to be talked about further, which are governance and climate change and the governance of climate change, which requires foresight and, uh, you know, sort of long-term planning and investment and a decisiveness. And of course, many Asian governments lack those characteristics. Um, but I think that they are learning fast from each other. And this is one of the things that we do see here in Singapore is that a lot of governments are sending their ministers and officials to Singapore to learn how to do these basics. And of course, they do feel the threat. They're not blind. They may not be the, the the sort of you know least corrupt countries in the world, but they certainly are um, noticing the impact of uh, cyclones and tropical storms and rising sea levels and so forth on their economies, and that they have to do something. They can lie to their own people, but they can't lie to nature, so to speak. So I'm I'm hoping that instead of the kind of breakneck pace of coastal urbanization development, where a lot of the trillions of dollars of infrastructure spending has been going, there are governments that are going to say, wait a minute. What are we going to do about resettling our populations, moving inland further, uh, you know, thinking about obviously water conservation, less uh, soil erosion and subsidence and all of these things that need to be done in terms of climate adaptation. And hopefully that focuses the mind, you know, and hopefully that in some way leads to greater accountability and spending and more foresight about how to productively employ labor while also sort of, you know, becoming as future ready as they can be in, in what's going to be a volatile climate. Thank you. Listen, uh, James Prague, let me thank you so much for, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, a fascinating conversation. I'm not going to try to summarize, to be honest, because we covered many things. But I'll just end to say that I, you know, I believe this leaves me being an optimist about Asia long term. Uh, but I would say a realistic optimist rather than only an optimist. So listen, thank you very much, uh, James and Prague. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>